0: Chapter 9, Ashnod The invasion party was stalled outside the walls of Zigon, and Hajar knew Mishra well enough to realize he was worried. But Mishra would not tell the Kadir about his concerns, nor for that matter, would Hajar. In the last few years, the Kadir had grown to manhood, and not all his development had been good. The eager young man who was interested in Argivian folktales had blossomed into an overweight tyrant. He was pampered by his tribe and supporters, and appeased by the tribe that now followed the Sawardi. No one ever said no to him. At least no one survived to say no a second time. What was once petulance now was transformed into foul-tempered rants. What was once eager bravery was now foolhardiness. He had become fatter than his father ever had been, but was still convinced he could lead battles himself. His moods were mercurial. His responses violent. As the kadir grew more tyrannical, Mishra grew more popular among the sowardi. The former slave knew how to speak to the kadir in such a way that he could present the most unpalpable options and escape with his head still attached to his body. The kadir's war captains noticed this first, then the courtiers, and lastly the chiefs of other tribes. Soon, those with bad news or new plans visited Mishra first for his advice and aid before speaking directly to the kadir. For his part, Mishra was open and welcoming to a people that had held him as a slave so recently. He was well-versed in desert lore and legend, and always had the correct analogy, the right words, and an ear of an abyss handy, but he always made clear his advice was based upon what was best for the kadir of the Swarty. He crossed the Qadir directly only with great reluctance. There was wavering among some of the tribes, the Thaladin in particular, when word spread the old Qadir was dead, but such ramblings of independence were drowned by the greater rumblings of the dragon engine now possessed by the Swarty. Early on, the young Qadir made it a point to visit the main clans of each of his allies, strong or weak. Each was in turn impressed by the power of the great metal beast. Some preached that it was a sign from the old ones themselves, a demonstration that they favored the Falaji in their attempts to keep the desert free of such invaders as the Argivians and the Yodians. This despite the fact that old Kadir and a number of good Falaji warriors, had all perished in the dragon engine's initial attack. Similarly, tribes now regarded the young Kadir as the ruler of the Makfawa, handily ignoring the fact that it was really the Kadir's wizard, his Argivian Raki, who controlled the beast. But Falaji logic was simple in this regard as well. The outlander wizard might control the beast, but the Kadir controlled the wizard. The Sawarti soon discovered that only the Raki could control the Great Dragon Engine. As soon as he passed the Power Stone to another, with Great Reservations and only the Kandir's direct orders, the Dragon Engine reared up on its hind treads and threatened to run amok. After a few such experiments, the gem was put permanently in Mishir's hands, and those in the tribe who knew of it were informed the gem would stay there. Mishra could put the beast to sleep while he rested and make a respond to his slightest whim. Hajar noticed that soon, no real words were spoken between the Raki and his mechanical servant. A gesture or a nod was enough. The Sawardi conquest of the deep desert was not entirely without incident. A group of hotheads from the Thaladin clan tried to ambush the Kadir's procession. The main part of the caravan retreated before their assault, and Mishra unleashed his dragon engine among the young riders. Fifteen died, including the Thaladin chieftain's son, without loss of a single Sawardi, The Thaladin submitted soon afterward. After solidifying his position in the eastern desert, the Kadir looked west. onion Dome Tomakul was the center of Falaji power its greatest and oldest city. Misha said he was more concerned about Argivian patrols along the eastern borders and the increased activities of the Yodians to the south. In reality, Hajar knew he wanted more time to study the marvelous creature, but the kadir would not be dissuaded. The party headed west toward the capital. Time was of the essence, the kadir said, in order to counter any plans made in the halls of Tomokul's many palaces. He need not have worried. Tomokul was as rotten as an old fruit, waiting for the slightest tap to split apart. In many ways, the city-dwellers were more like Yodians than Falaji. They were preoccupied with wealth, money, and caravans. As long as the kadir promised to not interfere with their daily lives, they were quite content to open their gates to him. The kadir accepted their tribute, but would not enter the city. Instead, he camped beyond their walls in the shadow of his great beast and made the city folk come to him. Hajar and Mishra had gone into the city. They found it beautiful and corrupt, wondrous and disease. Here, trade routes from Sarinth to Krug converged with those from the eastern coastal nations to Teresia City farther west. The last was no more than a legend to Hajar, a city of scholars to the west who traded with the Desert folk for artifacts and old tales much as the Argivians had. The city was a brightly covered cavalcade of different peoples, dwarfs from Sardia, holy men of distant gix, and minotaur mariners from some far-off islands. There were warriors in zebra-hide capes from Zigon, and furred traders from the Yumuk Nation in the shadow of its great glacier. Yodian merchants trod the city streets as well, visibly nervous among the celebratory Falaji. And there were other folk wandering the narrow byways who defied identification of homeland or race. But in the end, Hajar and Mishra retreated to the desert to confer with their Kadir. Though Mishra strongly urged his chieftain to push on toward the west to his reputed city of scholars, the Kadir determined they would move south instead. To Zigon they would go, he said, to the place that shared its heritage with the Falaji and was rightfully part of their shared empire. Mishra argued, but in the end, the Kadir made it clear the matter was closed. And now, used Hajar, they were stalled outside the capital city of Zegon, with five hundred men and a mechanical dragon. Worse, the dragon was misbehaving. It was a simple matter. When they gotten within half a mile of the capital, the Mokfa was stalled. It simply refused to proceed any forward toward the city. It would move to the east or west, or back up, but it would not come any closer to Zegon, and no amount of mental commands, hand motions, shouting, or hitting it could convince the mechanical beast otherwise. The Kadir, not one to be denied, was epileptic. He wanted the beast looming before Zigon's front gate when the city surrendered. Instead, his armies were within sight of the city's whitewashed walls, but could not advance no farther. Hajar could see the city guard lined up on the battlements of the outer wall, spears in hand, almost taunting the Qadir's armies. Some of the spears had skulls on their points. No doubt some additional Zagani taunt Hajar was unfamiliar with. The only thing the Qadir's forces could do was make the best of a bad situation. The Dragon Engine began a long, slow patrol around the perimeter of the city, keeping the half-mile distance that seemed to hold it at bay like a physical wall. A message was sent to the leaders of Zigon, calling their attention to the power of the Dragon Engine, and demanding the city's immediate capitulation. The Zigani sent back a terse note that they would consider the Qadir's offer, and he was welcome to wait while they made up their minds. That defiance did not improve the Kadir's mood. That evening in his tent, he rallied against his captains, and in particular, against his Raki. Why can't you move it any closer? He thundered. We don't know why, answered Misha calmly. Why don't you know? Cried the Kadir. Because you have demanded we run all over the continent, impressing the other tribes, thought Hajar. Because we have not had the time or the resources to study the beast, other than what hurried sketches we can make while moving from place to place, because it was not a priority for you until now. Hajar wondered if Misha was thinking the same thing. Instead, the Kadir's Raki said, it could be many things. Possibly there is something about the city itself that keeps us at bay. Or maybe something about the nature of the Mokfawa. There may be some item the Zagoni have that's affecting the engine. We don't have enough information to be sure. Right now the question is, do we press on, or do we fold our tents and abandoned Zagon, contending ourselves with the riches of a united desert nation? The Kadir slumped back into his pillows, and a serving girl bathed his head with a damp cloth. He ignored her and said, You have traveled through this land. It is rich in timber and metals. It is properly part of our empire. Its people are Falaji in origin. As much as the Tomacool were, thought Hajar. Indeed, from what we had seen of the Zagoni, they were much like the city-dwelling Falaji in their mercantile outlook. He wondered idly if all the coastal nations had some unknown means of stopping the dragon engine and how the Kadir would react if that were indeed the case. The Kadir was still talking. We go on. We patrol with the dragon engine. We start leveling the smaller towns. Beyond the half-mile radius, we drive people into the capital. Panicked people, who tell of the monster that lies waiting beyond the gates. In the meantime, we send messengers back to Tomokul, to gather more warriors. we will assemble enough to break down the walls if need be. Hajar thought the plan represented the waste of a better part of the year, but if any of the war captains agreed with him, they remained silent. A few advisors had argued loudly with the Kadir in the past. They had disappeared soon afterward. The only one who seemed to get away with it was Mishra and he had several tons of dragon to support his argument. But Misha only nodded and said, We will need siege machinery. Nothing complex. Simple battering rams to assault their gates from all sides. That, in addition to a large amount of troops, should be enough. Hajar wondered, not for the first or the last time, why Misha did not simply use the power of the dragon engine to escape from the Qadir's petty tyranny or to establish himself as the Qadir. The former digger thought he knew the answer to that question, though. The Raki could overturn the Qadir and even maintain a core group of tribes to support him. But to what end? He had no apparent desire to rule over an empire, or even over a small part of one. He would rather be the power behind the throne. Hajar was still turning these matters over in his mind, and he and Mishra walked back to the Raki's tent, located on the outskirts of the encampment, on the off chance that the Raki might summon more dragons in the dead of night. Mishra was quiet, as he always was after one of the Kadir's explosions. A guard stood outside the Raki's tent, which was unusual, more unusual, the brazier within was already lit, and the tent issued a warm, inviting glow. The visitor, said the guard. His accent was atrocious, and Hajar immediately pegged him as one of the westerners from the tribes around Tomokul. It is late, said Mishra. The guard shrugged. Does the Qadir know? asked Mishra, earning another shrug. Hajar felt his irritation rise at the guard. What good is a guard who doesn't guard anything? Is it the kind of man to whom we are trusting our empire? I see, said Misha without apparent anger. Go back to your duties. The man gave a gold-toothed smile and faded back into the darkness. Mishra stepped into the tent, regarding the interloper. I have been expecting you, he said, much to Hajar's surprise. I'm glad you made yourself at home in my absence. The visitor was a woman, among the most cruelly beautiful women Hajar had ever seen. Red hair was rare in the desert and was taken as an evil omen among the Sawarti. Hers was the red of a flickering camp flame, It rolled over her shoulders in thick, wavy curls. Her eyes were the gray-green of the sea that lapped Zegon's shores, and just as stormy. She was dressed in mannish armor of the outlander style, but the armor had been cut in shape more to favor her figure than to offer any real protection. Hajar realized he had stopped breathing. He inhaled deeply and wondered if she had noticed. She was reclining on Misha's pillows, and she stretched as she entered. I was expected? She asked. Her voice was soft, but carried a razor's edge with it. You... Or someone like you, replied Misha calmly. You represent Deagon's rulers, and you're going to propose a deal to save your city.
1: I don't remember telling anyone that,
0: but the guard I bribed, said the woman. If he told you, I'll have to have him killed. Not to worry, returned Misha. He'll be punished enough for letting an outlander into camp, regardless of the bribe. He will be made an example of, and in the end, he will wish you had killed him. May I offer you some nabis?" Please said the woman, and Misha motioned for Hajar to put an ewer of wine on the brazier. He sat down opposite the woman and waited for her to begin. Instead, she stared at Hajar. Your men-servant, she said coldly. Hajar brought out the insult. He is my bodyguard, said Misha. He should not be here, said the woman shortly. Go, said Misha to Hajar, still staring intently at the woman. Hajar began to protest, but Misha cut him off. Go to your tent. Tell no one. If I need anything, I'll shout. Hajar wavered for a moment and looked at Mishra. Yargavan revealed nothing but merely watched the woman sitting among his pillows. He seemed as he was with the kadir. thought Hajar, closed and unapproachable. The Falaji sighed deeply and bowed, then backed out of the tent, his face marked with disapproval. "'You are right, of course,' said the woman as soon as Hajar had left. "'I have been empowered by the rulers of Zigon to negotiate on their behalf with the Falaji
1: invaders.'
0: But you are not Zigoni, observed Mishra. A small smile played across the woman's face. And you are not Falaji. I am Mishra, Raki of the Sawari, returned Mishra. I am Ashnod, said the woman, of nothing in particular. Is Zigon your home? asked Mishra, running a hand over the rim of the meadow Ewer. The Nabiz was almost ready.
1: I did not say that,
0: answered Ashnod. And you are loyal to them? inquired the Rocky.
1: I did not say that either,
0: responded Ashnot.
1: I merely told you they empowered me to speak on their behalf. They agreed quite readily. I'm afraid some of them feel if I make a muck of things and get myself killed, they can forswear me and will breathe more
0: easily. And the offer you are presenting is? inquired the Argivian, reaching for the heavy metal cups. Ashnot cocked her head for a moment, then said, Just a moment. She reached down to the floor at the base of the pillows and brought up a long staff. It was made of black thunderwood and was topped by a tangle of copper wires and the narrow skull of some sea creature. She raised the staff quickly and pointed it at the doorway. Ashnod barked a string of words, and the tangle of copper wires sang a discordant song. Wisp of lightning raced across the tracery of wires and into the skull itself. The staff lurched a fraction in her hand, but Misha saw no obvious beam or other discharge. He did not see the effect. Just outside the tent entrance, Hajar gave a choked scream and fell into view, clutching his chest. Mishra was on his feet at once, crossing the tent and kneeling beside his bodyguard. Hajar twitched as he stopped beside him. So cold, managed the Falaji. It feels so cold. We were to be left alone, said Ashnod stonily. She lowered the staff. Her forehead was damp with precipitation. I hate it when underlings can't follow orders. The chill wave of nausea passed through Hajar and slowly the world righted itself. She? he gasped. She did this? She did, agreed Misha, helping his bodyguard to his feet. Because you disobeyed an order. I told you to go to your tent. But? Go now, old friend, said Misha. Hajar looked at the young man, and there was nothing. No, there was the faint trance of a smile on his face. Misha was pleased. By Hajar's loyalty? No, thought the bodyguard. There was more to it than that. He was pleased by something that woman had done? He was pleased Ashnod had attacked the bodyguard with her witch staff? Hajar pulled himself to his feet. And Hajar, said Mishra. Hajar turned. Thank you for not screaming too loudly, said the Argivian, again the ghost of a smile. I want to talk to our guests before any guards arrive, he said. Now go. Hajar stumbled into the night. Mishra watched him disappear into the darkness before turning back. Ashnod had taken the opportunity to pour the nabis into its brass cups and was reclining on the pillows again, looking as if nothing out of the ordinary had occurred. The skull-tipped staff was back at the base of the pillows. Misha took his own cup and sat down opposite her. Then he laughed. It started as a small chuckle, descended into a chortle, then moved into a full-fledged belly laugh. At length, he offered his cup in a toast and said, That was very foolish. Ashnod looked indigent and did not raise her cup in response. He was spying on us and disobeyed your order. Mishra took a long pull on the enemies and chuckled again. No, not attacking Kajar, but by attacking him the way you did. You tipped your hand. Ashnaq gave him a cross look, and Mishra smiled. The woman noted it was a warm grin, without malice, and relaxed for the moment. That staff, Mishra said. You made it? Yes, she replied. Mishra nodded to himself and kept smiling. That's what is keeping the dragon engine at bay, isn't it? The guards along Zegon's walls held similar staves. You made the staves and told the Zegani rulers they could keep the great evil Falaji away from their city. Sully, Ashna nodded.
1: Your engine is a big target.
0: But your staves have a flaw. They take a lot out of the user. Ashna was silent. After using it only briefly, you are sweating, added Mishra. Ashna grunted.
1: Men sweat. Women
0: glow. You were glowing like a horse after a hard race then, Mishra chuckled. And if the city's guards were similarly affected, they would be debilitated. The rulers of Zigon would not be pleased by that. Ashnot sorted.
1: The rulers were all too quick to adopt my status for their defense, she said. Once the guards started to weaken from their use, those same rulers panicked.
0: And sent you into the desert to sue for peace, added Misha. They probably said it was your idea that encouraged them to resist, so it was your fault. You've met the Zagoni before, Ashnod said, a small smile crossing her lips as well. I've dealt with their types in many forms, said Misha, leaning back. So tell me, what do they want? Bare minimum. Ashnod took a deep breath.
1: "Tumakos deal. They surrender, pay some tribute, recognize your boy as ultimate leader, and get back to their lives.
0: Misha considered. Sounds reasonable. Not to say that the Kithir would be reasonable, after all. You did stop us in our tracks, if only temporarily. I'll see what I can do. The Argivian set his cup down. Now let me see your toy. Ashton leaned forward and hefted the staff. She looked into Mishra's eyes for a moment, as if trying to determine what malice, if any, lay within. Then she handed the staff to him. The Falaji Raki turned the staff over in his hands. I see some Thran influences, but this is new. How does it work? It affects the nerves of the body, replied Ashton.
1: The lightning in the staff upsets the body's mechanism that allows one to feel and distinguish pain. Too much upset, and the target is incapacitated. At the range of your dragon engine, it was not severely affected, but it would not come closer.
0: Nerves, said Mishra, nodding and tapping the small power crystal that had been set within the staff's skull. Right, agreed Ashnot, setting her cup down and leaning forward.
1: The body has all manner of systems within it, living tubes for blood. Soft wires for nerves. Strands of cable for muscles. She reached out, touching Mishra's
0: arms. He did not flinch or pull away. You are no book scholar. Your arms are like spun steel. Life in the desert is hard, said Mishra softly. I never thought of the body as a machine. It is the best machine, said Ashot, releasing his arm. Tested in the field, continually growing and self-replicating.
1: Once we understand the mysteries of our own bodies, we understand the world. Everything else will fall into place. Your dragon engine is a wonder, but it is a crude imitation of living things.
0: Misha chuckled. This is the first real conversation I've had in a long while. Ashnot curled up amongst the pillows. There is a lack of intellectual companionship among the Falaji? Misha laughed and leaned forward. Most of the conversations I've had with the Soharti are along the lines of, you give me that, in various forms, followed closely by, you and what army? The young man chuckled again and set down the staff. I hadn't considered the body as a machine, but it makes sense. After all, we create things in our own image. Perhaps the Thran did as well. He moved over and sat next to Ashnod. Ashnod leaned close. Misha could smell her musky perfume, accented with a tang of drying sweat. It was a pleasant combination. I think I could convince the Khadir to accept your ruler's request, he said softly. I thought you could, said Ashnod. You seem very capable. There's that. Ashton wondered if Misha smiled at anyone else in that fashion. The Raki added, And the fact that our most revered one is still impatient as a child. If he had to wait for reinforcements from Tomokul, he would explode from the delay. Of course, there is one other thing. Ashton pulling away from him.
1: One other thing?
0: Misha said, The Zagoni must be seen to pay for their token resistance. They must suffer more than Tomokul, which threw open its gates to us. We will need an additional guarantee. Guarantee? asked Ashnod. The Falaji take hostages to encourage obedience, said Mishra. Surely taking their premier artificer would be sufficient. Ashnod's eyes became slit.
1: And would I be a Falaji hostage,
0: or yours? Mishra smiled again, and there was a touch of maliciousness in the expression. The Falaji have little use for women, he said. Beyond the basics. The basics do not include intelligent conversation, correct? inquired Ashton. You have the general idea, returned her companion. You would be viewed more as something we are denying the Zagoni as opposed to something to benefit the tribe. Ashton leaned forward and touched Mishra's cheek.
1: Hostage is such a nasty word. How does assistant sound?
0: Mishra's eyebrows raised for a moment, then settled again. Is that really what you came here for?
1: Am I so transparent?
0: she asked. Koi once again. As glass, said Misha and laughed. When would you like to begin your lessons?
1: Lessons in the morning,
0: said Ashnot in a throaty whisper. This evening, we are alone. I don't think your bodyguard is coming back anytime soon. Misha smiled and closed the grate on the brazier. There were no more words that evening. In the morning, it was announced that the city of Zigon, fearful of the great dragon engine, had joined the Falaji Empire. Tribute would be paid. An absence made to the great and revered Kadir the Sawardi, ever the first among equals. As terms of their surrender, the Zagoni agreed to remove the gates of their city so they could never stand in opposition to the Falaji again, and they gave up their best artificer, who joined the Falaji camp as the Raki's apprentice. If any of the warriors felt uncomfortable about the presence of the cold-eyed woman with the cursed hair in their midst, they did not say so, at least not where the Raki could overhear. Soon afterward, word arrived that the outliners along the coast we're making heavy raids in the Falaji lands, and the invasion force turned east again.